You're listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and joining us are Michael and Justin Edwards, who happen to be two of my sons. Glad to be here. Yes. In this episode, we want to talk about Brian Wilson's Surf, Sand, and Studio Revolution, a retrospective look at how the 60s changed music forever. As you know, my focus is uh, the 50s and 60s analog media and uh, how stupendous the changes have been since those early days of recording and the commodification of music and sound. And uh, I want to explore some of those themes um, as we uh, get into this topic. Uh, Let let me start with just a little bit of uh, introduction of uh, the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. They'll be sort of our test case, and we'll see how uh, some things flow from uh, who they were and what they did, as well as uh, by whom they were influenced and who they ended up influencing over time. Brian Wilson, as you know, uh, most likely, uh, helped start a family band that eventually became known as the Beach Boys. Brian Wilson, Carl Wilson, Dennis Wilson, uh, cousin uh, Mike Love, uh, as well as uh, some high school friends, uh, people who joined the band in various capacities along the way that we may mention and identify later. But uh, when they joined the music scene, they were just a bunch of guys who had gotten together on weekends and in their parents' home, uh, really in their garage, so in some ways the original garage band, uh, in the hopes of making what we would call a hit single, focused on a theme that became quite common and quite identified with the Beach Boys, and that is surf, sand, beach, sunshine, and the all-encompassing mythology of California as a a place that invited uh, enterprise and freedom and uh, a chance to uh, become uh, someone that you couldn't be in Cleveland, Ohio, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, or Spokane, Washington. And uh, we want to explore... uh, What happened to make not just a family band become a very successful, maybe the most successful California band uh, of the era uh, and uh, with international implications, uh, but also uh, how it changed the way people even looked at music and their aspirations in listening to music. Um, I'm wondering, uh, from your guys' point of view, when did you first became aware of a group called the Beach Boys, and what were your early associations when you began to listen? Well, I can I can jump in. It's hard for me to pick a first time, because I can't remember not knowing of, you know, as soon as I was conscious and aware of music, Beach Boys were already part of the universe, and so it's kind of impossible for me to think of a single moment, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely it was part of the environment that we grew up in. It was just always there. I know specifically myself getting into, you know, oldies, 50s music, uh, being influenced by you guys, especially with stuff like the uh, Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack and uh, was another one like the Big Chill, I think, had a bunch of oldies on it. Um, and yeah, I just... For me, the early Beach Boys, to me, I had this 50s tape that had a Corvette on it, and it had um, Ba 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 Baran, and I remember just listening to it over and over on our little cassette players. Um, yeah, I mean, I might have been like seven or eight when I really took hold of, oh, okay, this is the Beach Boys, they do the fun surf thing. Mm-hmm. And I can remember sometime in elementary school at some talent show, some of the girls in my class did a Surf in USA hula hoop dance on stage. I don't know why I remember that. I think Carolyn Caperna and some other people. Yeah. Name drop tagger. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also like, I mean, I, you can speak way, way better to this dad, of course. Um, but 
you know, if, if you think of Elvis as setting our hips free and as a Bob Dylan is setting like our, our lyrics free, um, Brian seems to set some kind of like total imagination of musical production free because there was, there was nothing you couldn't add to the layers as far as he was concerned. More harmonies, more instruments, more, more reverbed out stuff happening. Well, essentially, uh, when you think about the Beach Boys, as, as most people do, uh, who aren't, let's say, serious fans who have every possible compilation LP and CD and so forth, uh, which, uh, you know, in, in envisions, uh, a, a kind of, uh, total commitment to California as the thematic core of everything they did. And initially, in the first, say, couple of releases, and certainly some of their early uh, uh, 45s uh, radio hits, uh, that is uh, what they're focused on. But uh, what I'm going to suggest uh, by the end of this uh, uh, show, and in the, uh, the the book I'm in the midst of writing, is that the, the revolution of, uh, of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys may be what happens in the studio Um and coupled with innovations and and uh, imaginative use of of sound in uh, uh, someone like Phil Spector's studio, uh, which is uh, you know simultaneous with some of the things that uh, Wilson and others are doing, um, this this opens up vistas as as Mike was beginning to suggest for uh, an oral canvas that uh, has. Lim- unlimited possibilities for doing more than simply record a live broadcast, so to speak, because essentially most of the bands of the era and and uh, and subsequent to it are are gathered in a sound chamber as the musical instruments are played and the vocals are played, and it's not so much that they're they're layering anything or, or they're they're trying to uh, smooth something out. Uh, in the vocals or the harmonies as much as they're trying to get a good take. And Brian sort of undermines that very expensive process called studio time and the cost of using a studio dedicated to capturing that take. Uh, and what he does is he uh, time shifts, labor shifts the whole process of producing a song or an album uh, by being able to manipulate the recorded sounds and vocals uh, indefinitely. And so by the time you move from a song like Surfin', which is very primitive and has sort of one guitar lick, uh, kind of a, a Chuck Berry uh, lick uh, played indefinitely, but live and captured live, with a pretty dull, not particularly interesting uh uh, lyrical track uh, to you know good vibrations. You've got a world of difference, and I think that's recognized by uh, every uh, you know rock historian and certainly uh, uh, the 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 later uh, linkages to the Beach Boys as an influence. That even more recently, uh, U two uh, and Bono have linked uh, some of their early aspirations as a band to both uh, the studio. Uh, and the uh, technology of recording music, but also even the, uh, you might even say, the uh, commodification of their culture and in creating a culture out of California that maybe existed, maybe it didn't, but they gave a, a uh, an explicit name for the sort of cultural experience uh, in the teenage years and the post-adolescent years that few people had ever accomplished before. You know, maybe we think about somebody like Bing Crosby during the war years uh, and uh, other uh, standards uh, type singers in the in the, the vast array of orchestras that that uh, on the radio uh, in the forties and fifties created a certain kind of culture and experience that wasn't as regionally specific and as. Uh, uh, denotative as the California experience would be. And, uh, Bono is sort of doing that for, for, uh, uh, Ireland and Irish and, and, uh, 
you, you know, uh, you've got to have some sort of precedent for that. And for these guys listening on the other side of the Atlantic, that was Brian Wilson. I, I wanted to say a little more about the production stuff you were saying about, you know, really turning recording from a, a live capturing of a performance into a, what you were saying was an aural canvas. And, you know, what are some of the other milestones in that? And you really do have to give Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys a lot of credit for expanding that canvas. You know, it's, it's a while before the Beatles really get as complex with their recordings and, you know, decades before Queen is doing Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's really all a precursor, like, that's what modern music production is now. It, it's all time shifted. I mean, there's some, you know, little pockets of, yeah, we're going to capture something live. And you have, you know, some of the video blogs are all about more urban, you know, authentic capturings of performances in real spaces. But a lot of most modern production is very time shifted, very piecemeal, very separated. And, you know, he was doing that before it was a thing, before it was cool. Definitely. Uh, and much of this starts, uh, as I've learned recently, uh, you know, watching a, a Bing Crosby documentary on, on PBS, uh, he, he is one of the, the, the artists who sort of revolutionized the, the, uh, the, the radio medium because, uh, if, 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 uh, uh, America was ready for uh, coast-to-coast broadcast. It was because uh, that uh, uh, Bing had had worked out the the logistics of doing a uh, a live broadcast in New York that would, of course, later be played at the same time as New York time. So I'd say a nine o'clock broadcast in New York, which would normally show up at six p.m. So you'd have to schedule your 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 work and your life and your dinner around that broadcast. Well, Bing figured out the logistics and working with the, the technologically astute people of his time to record that six, that uh, nine o'clock broadcast so it could be played again. And the, the key term is again, uh, self-contained to the West Coast live as it were so that uh although you know ben uh, uh bing sorry <laughs> bing <laughs> his lesser known brother bing ben might have Crosby. inserted a few references to a west coast phenomena to to make it seem more live but you know much like syndicated radio uh systems today uh, insert a local reference or a local weather forecast or something bing was the first one to really popularize that and make it possible it, it also made him for the time uh, a very rich man from the technology and uh, you know just as a sidebar because i'm interested in it you know bing bing had uh, had to uh, uh leave the united states to go to europe during the world series one year and uh, he wanted to be able to see the World Series as it was, as a live broadcast without learning the score and so forth. And so he worked out a way for, I believe, it's uh, the uh, Don Larson uh, no-hitter in the World Series uh, to be to be taped and uh, preserved for him so that when he got back from Europe a month or so later, he could watch that uh, privately uh, and... Uh, I'm, I've always uh, been uh, impressed with both his love of baseball, which makes him high up in my opinion, uh, but also that he had begun to use the technology to uh, to make possible that time shift of what you could absorb, uh, both uh, in terms of the radio uh, and the uh, the television medium. But having having moved back in time to uh, to Bing Crosby's era, there were many other things going on, and I think uh, it's it's hard for us, uh, especially those who have who have grown up um, post nineteen eighty, to imagine what it was like in an analog culture to uh, to listen to anything and to have any control over whether you could ever hear a second time or a tenth time, uh, because the radio. Uh, uh, was a system of program directors and disc jockeys and sponsors. And uh, you got to hear, you got to listen, you got to be exposed to only that which 
uh, the record companies who are pushing a certain artist or a certain kind of song uh, or what the movies were being based upon at the time. Um, and even, uh, you might say, the live broadcast that would occur from New York, from Los Angeles, from Philadelphia, from Memphis, and so forth, um, you had very little opportunity to choose what you wanted to hear. Uh, and so music, and I, I've used the word commodification several times in this, in this particular show, uh, doesn't really become an item or a, uh, a, a corpus of, uh, of broadcast songs and spoken word and lectures and so forth until you can find a way to technologize the division of, uh, of what you're going to sell. Uh, and so, you know, we, we start out with these very large so-called 78 RPM records that don't hold a lot of music. And so, <clears throat> so if you want to listen to a symphony, you've got to get an album in the literal sense. It's not an album meaning one LP or one 33 and a third uh, album, but you get literally what looks like a picture album with seven to ten separate 78s, very heavy, not portable. Um, and, of course, the, the whole technology of listening to recorded music is a very unwieldy, unwieldy process. It's in your in your living room, which got to be called a living room, primarily because that's where the large object called the radio was uh, before there were transistor radios and smaller and smaller uh, miniaturizations uh, brought to us by Japanese uh, industrial companies like Sony. Uh, and, and the record player is a console that is almost as large as a, uh, a big screen TV these days. Uh, and uh, you put it on the spindle, and you selected the right speed, and you sat down for a few minutes until you had to flip to the other side. Uh, and, of course, the, the irony of the 33 to 3rd RPM vinyl record coming back into some kind of uh, niche and popularity so that uh, uh, many, many listeners to music consider it a superior experience to listening to CDs and MP3s. Uh, yeah, I have issues with that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and it, you know, it, it, it varies. But the ability to purchase that album meant going to a record store. And you know, imagine if, if we were classifying the kinds of businesses, uh, or now we would think of them as, as mall stores that were <laughs> defined by the uh, the medium that you could sell. Uh, you know, the, the old joke on the old Saturday Night Live uh, uh, skits about the Scotch tape store, where there's a whole store in a mall <laughs> dedicated to different kinds of Scotch tape. Uh, or you're making me think of UHF with Spatula it, City. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, so people like uh, Weird Al, they were you know, picking up on these odd cultural uh, signals of, of, of a change. And, uh, uh, you know, you can uh, measure the, uh, the era you're in in a movie or, or, or uh, uh, TV show these days by do they use a DVD, do they use a, a VCR, a you know, VHS tape? You know, how, how does that fit into the kind of cultural moment I'm living in? And uh, and even now, uh, uh, you know, ha has a has a service like Spotify. We were talking about it last night, weren't we? Does this, does Spotify uh, preclude the necessity of ever downloading my own copy of something, uh, or shall I run out and get the you know the uh, the CD and uh, and you know even that you know that that sort of phenomenon is only. A, about 20 years old, where, where we'd have to make that choice. Yeah. Well, I can definitely speak to being an 80s kid, um, living through this, a lot of this transition, um, probably, you know, the end of the golden era of physical media into streaming all the things. But I, I remember, it might have been the same oldies tape Justin mentioned, but, you know, having an oldies tape on cassette and how, you know, it'd be The Lion Sleeps Tonight or Mr. Sandman or, you know, other oldies. And 
being able to rewind and hear my favorite parts of the song over and over was a big deal to me. And, uh, when I got my first CD player in, you know, like 94 or something, 95, being able to program the order of the songs felt amazing. Like, oh, I could just say song number three happens 10 times and then song number four happens once. And like, that just seemed like a novelty. Like, um, also seeing like the time code on the CD player, like, oh, I'm exactly 30 seconds into the song. And I know that. Um, all these things just seem so new and weird. And now it's like, why would you, of course that's possible. Why wouldn't you have that? And, you know, it seems so trivial now when Steve Jobs walks out and, with a deck of cards and says, here's a thousand songs. And, um, I remember, you know, some of the, the savvy takes on that was like, this is wonderful, but also now everyone skips songs all the time. And, you know, oh, I don't want to hear this one. Oh, I don't want to hear this one. Uh, not right now. And do people sit down and listen anymore? And I'm really looking forward to someday when I, I have a house, like building a listening room so that, you know, it doesn't have to be vinyl. Like I'm, I'm not as sentimental about vinyl, even though I do like purchasing new albums on vinyl as long as they come with MP3s. So I get both convenience and, yeah. and the, you know, we're humans. We like collecting things. We like physical objects to, to sort of represent what we did. Um, but I look forward to having a room, whether it's Spotify or, you know, whatever format the music comes in where I can sit and focus. And, you know, this is a place for not just using music, but to receive it. I see as Lewis reference. I approve. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of the last time I've sat to listen to, to just listen. Like, I listen to music on road trips, I guess. So the last road trip I took was, you know, in August or so. So I listen to a lot of music then. But, you know, I go months and months between sitting down and going, let's actually check out this album. Um, and I, I don't like it. I do miss enjoying music for sure. I just It's faded away as part of this technology's, you know, consequences. It's definitely changing behavior. I'm glad you, you brought up road trips because, you know, it's like, it's tempting to sometimes be like, oh, this new technology is ruining us or, you know, the opposite to be like, this is, you know, this is the most amazing thing ever and who cares about the past. But, um, I remember one road trip of probably a couple of years ago when I drove out to California to visit Matt and Justin. Um, I just set up an open Spotify playlist and I just told everyone dump songs into this and it kind of like made other people part of my, road trip in real time and i could you know i'd be like oh joe manahan added another song i'm going to check it out and i'm in the middle of utah and it, it was just kind of a neat little experience of some of the the things that the new technology does offer that could be interesting and compelling i know we're kind of starting to get away from brian himself and we're just talking technology but well you've just identifying some of the uh the permutations of, of the Beach Boys' influence and other bands, of course, but I, I like to center on uh, the things that, that he did. And, uh, you know, there's, there's another day, another show where we can talk about the, more about the sort of Beach Boys catalog and, and the, uh, hiatus that, uh, Brian, um, himself had to experience because of, uh, you know, uh, some, some drug problems and psychological issues that left him sort of, uh, 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 on a desert island away from uh, the rest of uh, humanity in some ways. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I, I think I'd like to, to, to take us back a little bit to the, uh, the 1950s and just before the, the, the Beach Boys uh, had this uh, revolutionary uh, effect on, uh, on, on, on the uh, adolescent music-buying crowd uh, at a certain point and uh, understanding that the effect they had on the rest of America once their songs became popular uh, and and really uh, 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 omnipresent in uh, in American top uh, top 40 playlists uh, they had that effect first on the the island of California or the the inland island so to speak uh, that uh, California's uh, uh, already uh, predominant influence over the rest of the country through movies and television, because that's where it's all filmed and written, except for live television shows. 
uh, like uh, The Tonight Show and other New York-based uh, talk shows, uh, I want to reference uh, a TV show. It seems like since we've talked about uh, Twilight Zone in a previous show and uh, Westerns in the uh, previous uh, immediate previous uh, show, um, it seems like we're always talking about CBS. But CBS did seem to have some cultural barometer of, of what was happening in the country, especially post-war. Uh, because how, how is America coming together? Uh, often thought of as a union, you know, the United States. Uh, but, you know, how was television really shaping the identity of, of people who lived as far away as Portland, Maine, and uh, f- uh, from Portland, Oregon? Uh, and uh, one show, one particular show, I think, deserves some credit for uh, making uh, rural America understand urban America uh, as well as the Deep South, uh, understanding the, the Northern Yankee culture, and that is Route 66. Uh, Route 66, of course, is the, the name of a, of a notable uh, highway in American uh, American history and American culture, uh, and uh, the Mother Mother Road and so forth. But uh, uh, this this show took American viewers in great great numbers for the time. Uh, first in black and white and then uh, full color, which was unusual for a CBS uh, broadcasting network uh, uh, expenditure of money. Uh, NBC was always the wonderful world of Disney and the wonderful world of this and that, and they, they, uh, they uh, made a name for themselves as a network because they were the color network, and uh, more and more Americans began to buy color TVs at at exorbitant expenses for the for the uh, rate of pay that most people were earning a living by at that time, but w- what happens is Route sixty six tells people what other people in the country, covering vast spaces of time and language and culture, even what other people eat, and maybe more importantly for youth culture, what other people dance to what other people listen to, what a party looks like in New Orleans versus one in Cleveland, Ohio, or one in Boston, or one in Detroit. Uh, you see uh, the diversity of uh, human skin. You see uh, African Americans, you see Hispanic Americans, you see uh, Asian Americans uh, as, as these stories that are written for Route 66 began to portray how how different America is from the isolation, very provincial kind of living that post-war Americans are used to. Of course, the war itself and the, the success or the the uh, success in terms of uh, we won the war uh, uh, made uh, a, a more itinerant kind of populace, uh, where people who had always lived their lives in in the village. Uh, or in the city, go off to war and come back, and they seem to have options now. They begin to think about this. I think that's one of the unacknowledged uh, uh, impacts of the of the show called Route sixty six uh, that uh, few few people have to think about. And, and a majority of people uh, now who uh, associate innovation and an interesting um, uh, plot driven uh, series. Uh, have never heard of, uh, but it really is the basis for uh, what modern day uh, script writers and directors and actors uh, have have the building blocks to play with. And uh, I don't know if uh, either of you have ever seen an episode of Route sixty six. I don't think I have. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a few. I remember you got the DVD of them. Finally, they released them. Um, right. Yeah, and and so you're saying that they are captures of post-war culture and helping kind of almost get America all on the same page in a sense and say like, hey, this is us in all of our different ways and that Brian's able to do this as well. Well, uh, he's able to do it as well, but I, I think it's it, it paves the way for uh, a radio station. I, I keep picking on Philadelphia because uh, that's the, the furthest east 
I could ever hear a station when I was growing up. In other words, I could hear a radio station playing Top 40 as far away as Philadelphia. And I could also hear New York, but this is an eastern seaboard culture I'm talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was amazing. It'd be very late at night because the, the, uh, the airways would sort of be, uh, available to pick up a 50,000 watt station out of Philadelphia. And the, the question uh, I have is, how would anybody in Philadelphia, how would a program uh, uh, manager, how would a disc jockey, how would a sponsor, how would a, a concert promoter ever know there was anybody in Hawthorne, California, playing a song about surfing? There really is no way... Uh, to ever even hear of surfing, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, unless a program like Route 66, an anthology program, the same two people, two guys free to travel the country who explore every sort of interesting experience an American can have, the kinds of jobs they have, the things they eat, uh, etc., and the conflicts they have as uh, human beings, uh, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as blacks and whites, and so on. To me, that opens up vistas, uh, oral vistas, if you will, for a, a Beach Boys sound to be acceptable for a, a playlist in Philadelphia. Now, it's not that they don't have water in Philadelphia. It's not that they don't have amusement parks in Philadelphia. It's not that they don't have pretty girls, uh, as the, the, the California Girls song later in the Beach Boys repertoire you know, seems to say that's where all the really, really seriously, objectively pretty girls are. That's California. Uh, I think it's a show like uh, Route 66 as the transition from westerns, which we talked about on a previous show, to realism uh, about urban life, uh, even country life, and the diversity makes possible the success of, of the Beach Boys and makes it possible for them to be a national and then international band and not just a regional California band. And as large and as influential as California is in our minds today, uh, it really was a kind of regional taste. And uh, again, uh, you know, think, think of Alaska, where I happen to live. If they developed some weird snow culture musical mythology that <laughs> had people singing songs about... Kalupalix. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. But uh, uh, to, to me, it, when you start thinking about the progression across the country. And that really was how the first Beach Boys single, Surfin', got played. It started out in California, then it moved to Arizona, Colorado, uh, you know, across the, uh, uh, the, the, the South. It eventually makes New York and Boston and Philadelphia, Detroit. It really is a progression, not a sudden you know, a uh, burst of national attention like, like could happen today. Most likely, you know, the term viral and all that that implies, you know, viral in 1962 would have meant that a disc jockey in San Diego plays a song that was played in LA two days ago and eventually gets played by a guy in Phoenix another week later and it spreads across the country. I can think of like a Cohen Brothers like Hudsucker montage of right, newspapers exactly. spinning. Right. Now the other thing we need to, to, to connect some dots with are some national broadcasts like American Bandstand, Dick Clark. Uh, who happened to be broadcasting out of Philadelphia. That's why I kept uh, thinking of Philadelphia as a, a bellwether of taste and uh, sales. Uh, and, you know, later on in the, in the 60s, you know, the, the venerable Casey Kasem, who got a shout out last night on the Grammys, uh, as somebody important to the, the history of uh, music and particularly rock and roll. Um, you know, if you got on, uh, Dick Clark's show, if you're selected, if you're given that honor, 3.30 in the afternoon every day, right when most American high schools are getting out, uh, and you come home, believe it or not, to watch a television show of other teenagers dancing. 
and and so the dance craze and then you know named dances you know it used to be ballroom oriented dancing like the tango and the foxtrot where these were dancers made up by 16 year olds to music played by sometimes 14 year olds <laughs> or or late developing 18 year olds and and having control of their own not their own destiny that's that's too flowery uh, but they, they had their own chance to create a culture that didn't belong to their parents, which is no insignificant thing. No easy task. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you can name some groups in the same era, the early 60s, you know, through, through exposure through oldies stations and so forth. But, um, you know, in, in, I'm talking about 1962, 63. This is pre-British invasion. So Rolling Stones are not here. Uh, the the Beatles have not yet come, um, and the only reason they eventually do come is the great airplay that they got. I mean, no one gets in their minds uh, as a, as a, four guys from Liverpool saying, "I think I'll hop on a plane to Shea Stadium in New York and play a concert." I mean that that doesn't really make sense. Whereas today. You know, any, any reasonably talented band can find bookings that eventually lead them to greater and greater, uh, notoriety in a certain region. And, you know, they can be played on, uh, uh, radio stations. They can be picked up on, uh, on uh, Spotify. They can be picked up on NPR, um, government sponsored radio even. And, uh, it, it, it's an interesting phenomenon to me. But I, I, I mentioned the, the Beach Boys, uh, can you think of another band, a prominent band pre-British invasion that Americans thought of or had, had some sort of uh, affection for or, or, you know, keep getting anthologized on albums that, that you could walk down to, uh, well, where do you walk down to find an album anymore? I mean, there's hardly, <laughs> any, there's hardly any, any place you actually go to, but that's the o- only way that you could buy anything is go to the store based upon that particular medium. Well, I remember uh, you had a, an article you shared, and I'm going to be vague on the details, so this is going to be a terrible story, but um, <laughs> about you know the history of singles in, in the 50s kind of like starting out with some really banal, like, you know, how much is that doggy in the window and other like very kind of, you know, that's a famous song, but it's kind of trite in a way. And, and how that changed. And, you know, is that how you would characterize what singles were before, you know, the Beach Boys or some of the other, um, you know, contrasted with maybe the 20s or 30s or 40s even, where there might be a, a greater mix of jazz and big band and, and all sorts of other genres? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, let me reference the, the, the book you're alluding to. It's The B-Side by uh, Ben Yagoda, uh, an excellent perspective, uh, cultural history of the transition from Tin Pan Alley, the, the uh, songwriting mecca in New York, uh, where you had uh, songwriters as in a big bullpen churning out songs, uh, of a certain nature and genre, uh, and, and having very talented people, uh, you know, Neil Diamond was one of those working at the Brill Building in the early 60s, not writing songs for himself. He wasn't a singer-songwriter. He was writing them for literally one-hit wonders. Yeah, and, and, by and design. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, this is uh, the Justin Timberlake in uh, Inside Lewin Davis, right? The yeah. That Lewin is for hire. He's this great, amazing singer-songwriter, but then he's hired to go write this, you know, you said a trite little folk song, and it's kind of topical and, yeah, one-hit wonder, destiny. Yeah, and that's that, that happens to be um, a, a brilliant depiction of what the early 60s in Greenwich Village in the New York area were uh, were, were built upon in terms of, of music and and scaling up in terms of notoriety and you know you know, thinly devised history of Bob Dylan being enacted there, but uh, uh, the the one hit wonder for, uh, uh, one hit wonder phenomenon was not because they wanted to keep groups down and not not let them let them have their own um, identity in larger culture. It's that the music industry is based upon who the songwriters were in the Brill Building. 
uh, and of course, that's uh, who who is it? The uh, new photographers who have an album is it called the Brill Building or Back to the Brill or something like that? Uh, I can't remember what they called their last uh, album, but it has Brill in the title, right? Or is it a song? Just uh, come on, yeah, it's the album. <laughs> <laughs> Google do wanna, Google's only so fast. Yeah, yeah, Brill Bruisers. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, last night again on the Grammys. Um, uh, man in in uh, in in uh, while the the husband and and uh, uh, wife team wrote you've lost that loving feeling for the righteous brothers, and the righteous brothers went on to have a, a significant career, but that song made their career. I mean that one song, and uh, that's uh, the, the same phenomena is belongs to uh, Phil Spector. You know Phil Spector's name, but you barely can recall the names of the groups who recorded his songs, except for maybe the Ronettes. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, because was there this sense of producer or even songwriter as auteur before Phil Spector and Brian Wilson and some of these developments? Um, what you know Were they seen as like, you know, the way you would think of a film director or, you know, a composer? Well, uh, the answer to that is uh, the, the history of uh, race relations in the music industry in America. And, of course, there were people like Fats Domino and uh, Chuck Berry and other great you know, black rhythm and blues artists and uh, who are singer-songwriters who don't get to make hits out of the songs they wrote. So you got a song like Tutti Frutti by Little Richard, and it has a mild playlist uh, effect, and uh, but who makes a hit out of that? Pat Boone, the whitest conceivable <laughs> artist of the time, and you know also a, you know a, a born again Christian, as we would say today, and you know very very uh, uh, sort of uh, the epitome of what every teenage young man should be you think make me think of the the onion had their our dumb century book yeah and they had an article somewhere you know in the early half of the century called they said whites invent rock and roll right <laughs> yeah no uh, and uh, you know it, it's 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 not a, a much of a of a jump when you when you look back and of course uh, what happens in back to the future episode one you know what does marty mcfly play it makes him, you know, an instant hit at the at his uh, parents to be uh, prom. He plays a Chuck Berry type song. No, right? he's not a hit. They all go silent, and he's like, "Well, your kids are gonna love it." <laughs> yeah, but uh, well, as I recall that scene, he's got he's the hip guy. Yeah, and 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 that's that's uh, what I uh, oh yeah I it's afterwards because he like starts soloing and like kicking the amp over and stuff, and they're all yeah. like, uh... yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, uh, to to kind of wrap this up and to move forward, I think um, you know the end of standards, the end of the music standard, the the, the typical showcase song in a movie, uh, and the reason I think we even have so called uh, theme songs from movies is the the attempt to to marry. Uh, the popularity of movies and moviegoers to the soundtracks, which are mostly instrumentals with one or two vocals. And, uh, and the ability to sell an album based upon the one song you went to hear at the movie you loved, because that's the only way you're going to buy that album, or the only place you're ever going to hear that song again, unless you go to a, a movie festival revival. I mean, how many times could people see and enjoy Casablanca when it first came out? Wouldn't they probably just see it one time, unless they were uh, they were near a big city and and it would come around every once in a while? I mean, you saw a movie once, and if you wanted to hear that singer who sang that song with Bing Crosby, you had to buy a seventy-eight and so on and so forth. Well, the fifties come in and they start to be disruptive to both movies and uh, who ends up kind of saving for a certain period of time the movie format for young uh, readers, young listeners and, and moviegoers. 
Elvis, because he not only has a rock and roll sound or a soulful song, he's also the bridge between rhythm and blues and Mississippi Delta type type uh, 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 cultural uh, anthems. Uh, he also makes the transition uh, to to bringing that music along with him in in movies of the time, as do the Beach Boys, who appear in a number of uh, early beach-type movies, and uh, at least once with the uh, uh, beach beach blanket bingo crowd. Uh, often terrible, terrible movies, but you, but you are going to see them uh, because you want to see what? California. Most of those movies are not set in New Jersey <laughs> for a reason. Great. I was hoping you'd uh, shift gears to the Elvis because he's the last, you know, culture maker as if i can coin the term you know um but yeah his his unique crossover into film is one i i've studied myself too because i wrote a dumb movie about elvis once um but you know michael going back to michael's question the main difference is that elvis was not a writer he's a performer you know and he's i, I think he's able to do amazing things with the songs he's given right um but yeah, he he lacks a certain magic for me because of that. You know, he he can't write his yeah. own stuff. Well, that's why I was thinking, like, you know, he said our hips free, but yeah, Dylan Dylan for lyrics and and Brian Wilson just the whole production magic. Yeah, mel- he said melodies free and and a, a certain kind of confessional kind of song too. Right, right. Yeah, in my room uh, is the epitome of that. And that was uh, almost the name of this podcast. I know. And I'm glad it isn't, actually. <laughs> Might seem a little too introspective. <laughs> a, little, a little narrowing, a little uh, over-framing of, of things. But uh, again, if you think about what was the prototypical early rock song about, it's about your girlfriend or about getting to go to the dance you know, at the hop. Um, uh, Bill Haley in the comments, uh, one, two, three. Three, four, you know, rock around the clock, and uh, they're kind of, uh, you know, set in some kind of context. They're kind of inane, right? I mean, the lyrics and, and the performances, uh, you know, heavy drums, uh, you know, uh, bass guitar, uh, very, very little finesse. Uh, you know, sometimes. A little bit of falsetto, which of course Brian pioneers, and along with the, in, in addition to the Four Seasons and and some others, but there's a sensitivity, maybe even a a, a kind of uh, one one writer recently has referred to to Brian's falsetto as effeminate. I don't know how you can distinguish <laughs> and make one thing seem effeminate and another thing manly, but. Um, you know, well, yeah, what is, is not... a manly falsetto? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Good question. Why gender it at all? Yeah, well, I I, I fully agree, uh, and I can tell you that when I heard these ultra sensitive or more reflective, you know, here, here's a young man. It's not it actually it's not uh, not Brian in in my room. It's his his brother singing the song, and of course, it's not a song that that Mike Love would ever sing. He's saved for the 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 hard pushing. Uh, more typical rock and roll, and not the sensitive. I'm in my room, and you know, feeling about how I feel about everything. And, um, and but Brian can write that song because uh, he had a, a, a kind of horrible uh, father story. You know, like like many of this era, where dad doesn't understand me or he wants to control me. I also and, think of Jackson, Michael Jackson. Yeah, in that vein. Sure, sure. Uh, all these family bands, the Cowsills. Not too many people remember them, but you know they they they're another family band that has uh, father and sometimes uh, uh, mother problems. Uh, because once once your son or daughter becomes uh, uh, famous or has some sort of following or audience beyond the family band, uh, they're, they're no longer under your control. And I don't mean they're wild necessarily, though that, you know, they, they have been in various scenarios uh, played out over the 60s and 70s. Uh, but they, they, they leave the nest early because of their talent and their notoriety and their, their ability to, uh, entertain. Uh, so, so Brian has that capability. Uh, he not only does that, but he, he, 
he um, he writes songs about being a grown up, which is the sort of lost dimension, I think, of the Beach Boys catalog. And and you know, in um, I mean, like, wouldn't it be nice? Or wouldn't it be nice? Which is about uh, marriage. Uh, there's a song called "When I Grew Up to Be a Man." Uh, you know, that's that's a very poignant declaration that I'm. I'm going to leave my family unit, and I'm I'm going to be able to make a living. I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to ha- I'm going to be a good citizen, so to speak. Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's kind of forgotten when you hear uh, "I can't get no satisfaction" as is sort of the preeminent you know, rock uh, song of let's say I think that's '64, 1964, where the innocence of the Beach Boys is sort of giving way to the the cruder, more instinctual kind of songwriting and performing that uh, Mick Jagger represents. And, you know, the, the Beatles can go lots of different ways. And they can sing When I'm 64, and they can sing um, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds to be an ostensibly uh, drug-driven uh, lyric and so forth. Um, but uh, just to say a couple of things quickly about the California mythology, you know, I, I think it would be a good point in the in the show where if you could, you could play an excerpt of Justin's song, uh, a song about songs about California, and maybe we can listen to a little bit of that, and then you know come back and and reference uh, some of its elements. Yeah, let's check it out. So that was from your 100 songs collection, Justin? Yes, the 100 songs in a year that I wrote 40 that year. Hey, not bad. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't know if you wanted me to say anything about it. It's just I also wrote a song about Route 66 that we could have referenced earlier. And about Bing Crosby's (laughs) recording setup. I wrote a song about CBS's TV. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I could if you wanted me to. I wrote oh. one about what Mick Jagger represents. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Just now. Um, good. No, I I love California growing up, too. It was the myth until uh, our older brother Matthew went out there, and it was like, oh, you could actually do it. It, it, it exists, and you could actually uh, get a job there or go to school there, yeah. or you could actually learn how to surf or fight drown. Out, as fight it over were. water in a few decades. That's right. Um, so what does Justin's California song, how does it exemplify kind of what we're talking about here for you? Well, I think you have the elements, the names of places, the names of, 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 of activities, uh, the feel, the, the tactile feel of the beach, the, the warmth of the sun, which is, you know, literally the name of a Beach Boys song. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, somewhat satirical, but, but uh, very affectionate, I think. And it, it echoes what many, many American adolescents uh, experienced and felt uh, in the early growing up years of the 60s. You know, I was born in 1952, and so, you know, roughly from age seven forward, I was listening to the radio all the time and, you know, trying to imagine what, what must be this magical place. Uh, and, you know, also helped along by Walt Disney, who was telling us to come to Disneyland in California, which has all sorts of neat uh, retro future uh, associations that I also love. Um, 
I, uh, I've sort of described it this way. Uh, I'll just, just read from a passage I, I, I've been working on. Uh, when the Southern California sun starts its slow evening descent, a blood-red orb slipping luxurious, luxuriously into the Pacific Ocean, a discernible lament emanates from across the continent. The truant, uninvited moonlight has invaded the eastern seaboard, long since registering its dreary dismissal of yesterday's glory. So you're on the east coast, the sun goes down, but somewhere the sun is out, and it seems always to be out. And the association with endless summer and the eternal uh, uh, light of uh, the California coast, it, it 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 gets inside your imagination. At least it did for me as a as a young boy and, and young man. Uh, and to see the uh, the eventual uh, moving of the television industry to join the movie industry to be almost completely located in Hollywood and Los Angeles, where so many of the shows that I loved growing up were uh, were were being filmed. And uh, you you begin to see that uh, certain kinds of themes, lifestyles, um, attitudes about the world kind of come together in California. That's not always a good thing, and it sometimes <laughs> it sometimes breeds excess, and it breeds uh, a kind of um, uh, attitude toward individuals where uh, we call the seventies. The me decade, uh, because the selfishness that came out of certain lifestyles associated with surfing and the Hollywood quote unquote lifestyle of, uh, being able to do whatever you want because you have so much money, you can't even spend it all and so on and so huh. forth. So seventies yeah, are known as a me decade because I feel like every decade someone is complaining that people are suddenly selfish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it's These millennial the, kids, man. It's the uh, post-Vietnam War era. It's the Nixon era, and uh, and so the end of the me decade is when Jimmy Carter, born again, Southern Georgian Christian peanut farmer, becomes president, and uh, you know he begins to talk about austerity and being able to uh, to find ways to save gas because uh, the Middle East is is. Uh, uh, holding us hostage and so on and so forth. So that's that's the the uh, retrospective look at the early seventies called the Me Decade, uh, but fading out as you know Jimmy Carter is calling for sacrifice and service, and uh, you know uh, you can see it reflected in the in the, the music of the era. I don't have it at hand. Some 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 easy catalog to uh, to have us reference here, but um, I would say the end of the seventies is almost like the end of the 50s in terms of the kinds of songs, like uh, novelty songs. Uh, and, you know, if, if you have, how much is that doggy in the window, epitomizing the, you know, inanity or even the very personalist, very narrow-minded view of, I can buy a dog, a cute dog that'll make me happy, and you turn that into the Archies. Who, who were truly one-hit wonders, who had a song called Sugar Sugar. <laughs> I mean, think about it. And if you've ever heard that song, you know that that, that really has, well, it, it has as little value as sugar has to most people's diets. And if it's your musical diet, you know, and, and this is what you like. It was number one for weeks and weeks and weeks when being number one really meant something. It meant <laughs> real 45s flying off the uh, record stores and department stores, uh, music departments. Yeah, I remember re- seeing stats when on Weird Al's most recent record was number one, but it was also 10% of what number ones sold, you know, a decade or two prior. Right. <laughs> it's like, I'm happy I'm number one, but also, wow, people don't buy stuff anymore. I wondered if uh, we could switch gears a little bit and, and talk a little bit about modern bands that clearly exhibit, you know, overtly or otherwise, um, some of the, the Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys um, legacy, and mainly because that's something I feel like I can actually speak to. Um, and I would bring up, um, first of all, in a video game, Bioshock Infinite, 
um, which has a you know a wide ranging you know, quantum time travel portal plot that, you know, I just spoiled that. But um, there's a lot of anachronisms in this game. And one of the things is there's a barbershop quartet singing God Only Knows, and they're on a flying little Zeppelin platform in, in this crazy sky world. And uh, it's just like a neat little moment. And it's a really nice rendition of God Only Knows, but it's also part of a, a bigger theme of, um, there's kind of some backstory, like clearly someone is going through these portal rips and is stealing music from other eras and passing it off as their own. And uh, so I, th- I thought that was a nice little reference in that game. And I remember when I discovered it, I was just kind of bouncing with excitement because I knew you we were writing this Brian Wilson book. So I was like, you know, filming my TV screen so I could send you a, a video yeah. clip of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, and, the, and there was the, uh, the other... Um, uh, fella in Toledo who was writing these uh, uh, little versions of... Uh, so this is uh, Joel Roberts of... Um, they were Ohio-famous band called Style X, and he had a side, side project called Go Lab, and he recreated pet sounds, and he calls it pet zounds. Um, <laughs> and he used like Game Boy hardware and kind of re-recorded all of uh, pet sounds um, his own version. And, you know, they're mostly stick pretty faithful to the arrangements Brian already created. He doesn't try to innovate in the arrangements, but, um, you know, that, you know, there's, you know, it's nice to call that out. Um, there's also, uh, one of my favorite, um, uses of the Beach Boys is Ockerville River has a song called John Allen Smith Sales. And uh, it's about the poet John Berryman who committed suicide and he was kind of part of, a a later 20th century tradition of very confessional poetry. Um, you know, maybe not terrifically unlike some of Brian Wilson's, you know, in my room kind of songs, but, um, and the way Ockerville river, you know, they have their own song for a couple minutes, but then in the end it goes into sloop John B, you know, John B, John Berryman. And they kind of have this little double entendre going of using sloop John B as an expression for John Berryman's despair in life and, and decision, um, you know, it takes on a whole new meaning when it's, you know, this is the worst trip I've ever been on. I want to go home. And they kind of dramatize him jumping off the bridge uh, to his death <laughs> using the Beach Boys. And it's kind of a, I think it's a really amazing moment musically in the past 10 years. It's one of my favorite things that's that's ever happened. And it's a very poppy song, very listenable, very, you know, it's not abstract or, or strange or avant-garde. Yeah, and also would be remiss to not mention um, you referenced Fantastic Mr. Fox earlier. And I remember watching with such joy when um, the song comes on when they're breaking into the farm and suddenly the Beach Boys are blaring. I'm like, yes, Wes Anderson used the Beach Boys finally. Yeah, they used heroes um, and villains. Yeah. And I think later in the movie, I just watched it this past weekend. So they, they use, I think it's I Get Around. They use a little bit of that later in the uh-huh. movie. Uh, yeah. Well, there's, uh, certainly a lot more to be said. And maybe we'll, we'll be scheduling, um, sometime, uh, before summer comes, uh, to talk more specifically and explicitly about the, the Beach Boys career path and Brian's, uh, fall, rise and redemption because, uh, it's a great story. Uh, although, you know, filled with, uh, sadness. But, uh, Brian has a new, uh, solo album coming out this spring. There's a, a, uh, national release and international release of the biopic called Love and Mercy, where Brian gets to play, uh, gets to be played by two different actors, uh, John Cusack, the older one, and, uh, you're gonna have to help me with his last name, Paul. Uh, Not Paul Dano. Dan- Dano, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he yeah. Plays him as a young man. So, uh, and that that played at uh, Toronto Film Festival and got a rave review, not only for its subject matter, but even the way it's told. Uh, you know, unusual for uh, uh, a biopic of this kind to be told uh, in the unique way. It's it's uh, bringing together two different actors from different eras of a person's life and not a strictly chronological greatest hits sort of uh, presentation. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. So we have a bunch of show notes related to this that you can check out at sunriserobot.net slash some pulp slash three. And uh, you can link out, uh, you know, some of the, the things we mentioned, Bioshock Infinite and 
um, that book, the the sing, the B sides was that book called uh, the B side. The B side. There's only one. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Because be, uh, just quickly, the, the, it's a clever reference because we we've heard of A's, A and B sides, but uh, until records were pressed on both sides, there was only one side. And so, when the technology catches up, so you can have two sided records, then you've got a chance to play a second song, which makes it good for the consumer and good for the artist. Absolutely. So yeah, check out the show notes at sunriserobot.net. And also, um, if you like some pulp, if you like this show, there's a couple ways you can support us at Sunrise Robot. Um, number one, you can rate the show on iTunes, which, you know, even if you don't use iTunes to manage your podcasts and you just listen on our website or something, um, it's still an important promotional avenue and it'll really help our show get out there. Um, leave a review, give us, you know, a star rating. That would be awesome. And the other thing you can do is, uh, support Sunrise Robot creating shows like some pulp um, by going to our patreon and um, you know even just a dollar makes a huge difference so if you go to patreon.com/ sunriserobot um, you can check that out 